Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast exploring rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. In rural communities across Canada, it's pretty tough to address problems like outmigration and uh, getting the skills, uh, the talent that you need for economic development if you can't attract and retain doctors and other healthcare professionals. But across Canada, of course, rural and remote communities are struggling in many areas to do just that. It's become an urgent problem that really limits all other types of rural development and innovation. So rural physician recruitment is an issue we'll visit from time to time here on Rural Spark, including with this week's episode. We're very pleased to have Dr. Roger Strasser from the Northern Ontario School of Medicine with us today. Dr. Strasser has gained an international reputation for developing and refining innovative strategies to train health professionals in and for rural communities. He is one of the few professors of rural health in the world, and he is a leading researcher on rural health service delivery models. So we invited Dr. Strasser to Rural Spark to share with us the unique model of education and training at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine that does help address rural health care needs, and to talk about innovative models of rural health care delivery around the world. We also wanted to hear his thoughts on what's holding Canada back in solving this problem, and what role the community needs to play in building a better future in rural health care delivery. Uh, welcome, Dr. Strasser. Thank you for making time to join Rural Spark today. Well, great to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Great. Um, Dr. Strasser, when we talk about rural physician recruitment, we're sometimes talking about encouraging people to, to travel a long distance, to go to a new opportunity in a, in a really interesting place. Sometimes we're talking about a major lifestyle change. So I thought we might start by talking about your experience in that area, because I understand that back in 2002, you actually uprooted your own family from Australia and moved to Northern Ontario for a very interesting opportunity at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. Uh, That must have been a big life transition and a big professional and personal transition. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, So I I should disclose that although I come from Australia and my background is in rural family medicine in Australia, I and my wife, uh, Professor Sarah Strasser, who's also uh, an academic in family medicine, rural health, uh, we had lived and worked in Canada before. But when we, between when we were in Canada in the 1980s and 2002, we'd acquired five children. And uh, I'd have to say that, that the five children weren't all that happy about moving from Australia to Canada at that time. The age range was eight to 15. And I would say that for the first year, they never missed an opportunity to tell us how we had completely ruined their lives and they would never forgive us. <laughs> and how has that story evolved? Have they come to embrace uh, Canada and Northern Ontario? Oh, very much so. But also, really, they've become citizens of the world. So traveling uh, across Canada and to other parts of the world is really something that's almost second nature to them now. The three younger of the five really grew up in Canada, and and I think they feel more at home here in Sudbury than than they do actually where we used to live in Australia. So I guess in these kinds of situations, and what we might find with recruiting uh, physicians is that there might be some bumps along the way, and the first little while everything might not be perfect, but in time these things work themselves out. Absolutely, I've spoken with many people. The move hasn't been as quite as as distant and dramatic uh, as in our case, but especially uh, with children in those sort of uh, 
uh, early teenage years, it's it, it's a challenging time. Even just moving from one one uh, suburb to another can be quite uh, uh, challenging and dramatic from the point of view of the children. Uh, so I think, but nevertheless, I think that is something that's important to uh, take into account when you're talking about uh, recruitment of, uh, of physicians and other health workforce to rural communities. The first point is that, uh, generally speaking, it's a whole family, not just the physician that needs to feel at home and want to be part of the community. And therefore, there's an important role for the community to actually step up and to uh, uh, welcome and, and embrace uh, the family members and ensure that their needs are, are met, talking about uh, education needs, employment needs maybe for the spouse and other issues like that. And I, I understand that with the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, uh, the rural delivery of healthcare is, is a founding principle and priority. Can you talk to us a little bit about the thinking that went behind establishing the school in Sudbury and what its priorities are. And I understand it sounds like it is pretty unique in Canada and maybe in the world. Yes, so uh, Northern Ontario School of Medicine came into existence as a result of a widespread community movement right across Northern Ontario, where people said, if we're ever going to have uh, enough um, doctors and other health workforce in Northern Ontario, if we're ever going to improve the health of the people of Northern Ontario, we need to have our own Northern Ontario School of Medicine. And so there was this, this uh, really a, a movement across Northern Ontario that advocated for the school and provided the basis for the school being established with what we call a social accountability mandate. That's a commitment to be responsive to the health needs of the people and communities of Northern Ontario with a focus on improving the health of the people of Northern Ontario. So really, even before the school started, there was active community participation in in uh, in the school coming into existence and then in the subsequent uh, planning and, and uh, implementation of the school. And when we look at the uh, the rural medicine priority of it, I understand that you and some of your colleagues do have expertise and connections with teams in other countries that are also looking at rural medicine solutions. Um, and in fact, I think in January, there's a forum taking place at uh, the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, bringing some of these partners together on a research project. Can you talk to us a little bit about the international connections and how broad, I guess, this challenge is? Canada's not alone in looking at challenges around rural medicine and bringing rural doctors uh, into rural areas. Yes, yeah, so that's a good, it's a good example that, uh, as you say, on uh, January the 15th, uh, uh, the school will be uh, holding a one-day forum, uh, which is about remote rural workforce uh, stability. And this forum will be in two parts. The morning part will be connecting with partners in the northern countries of Europe. So uh, for seven years, since 2011, Northern Ontario School of Medicine has been partnering uh, as a Canadian member of the group with Norway, Sweden, Iceland and uh, Scotland, the northern part of Scotland, uh, with a focus on retention recruitment of health and other public sector workers in the remote rural communities of these countries. And the most recent project w w was actually about implementing tried and proven initiatives in the Arctic, in fact. So Nossum partnered with Nunavut and we focused specifically on, on physician recruitment retention. And so in the morning part of this forum, We'll be connected with the partners in Nunavut, but also uh, in the other countries that I mentioned, and to report on uh, the work of, of this, uh, this Making It Work Recruit and Retain 
project and the outcomes, which includes a remote rural workforce stability framework, uh, which has key elements in it, all of which need to be addressed for successful retention and recruitment of the remote rural health workforce. And then in the afternoon, we'll be having a, 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 um, a session that's more focused on Northern Ontario, and again, multi-site uh, video linking across Northern Ontario, where we present uh, the progress since we held a summit in January 2018 in Thunder Bay. It was, uh, we call it Summit North, and it had a focus on achieving a, a flourishing physician workforce in remote rural communities. Uh, we had a, in Thunder Bay a, a something of the order of 130 participants uh, from all parts of Northern Ontario that then led to a task force which has developed an action plan based on what came out of the, the task force. So the afternoon on January the 15th will focus on progress with implementing the changes that were recommended uh, in the action plan and also a related uh, activity. So at the keynote speaker at the Summit North in January 2018, was in Queensland, Australia. And so we uh, have looked to the experience of Dr. Dennis Lennox, a uh, physician who retired uh, about 18 months ago from Queensland Health. And he led two important developments. The first is the rural generalist pathway. So this is a pathway where you look to encourage young people, high school, even, even elementary school students uh, in, in the remote rural communities to see a future for themselves that might include healthcare and practicing medicine and then supporting them through the steps and the pathway into medical school, through medical school, in postgraduate training, residency training, and then into practice and, and beyond. So that's the rural generalist pathway. And then the other initiative of Dr. Lennox is establishing what are called service and workforce design teams. So this is working with communities that, that are really struggling to maintain health services and, and working with all of the players in the community, the, the existing uh, doctors and other health workforce, uh, the health service, uh, hospital health service, and uh, the community members as well, the community as a whole, and focusing first on the health needs of the population and redesigning the service model to address those health needs and also to ensure that the service model is attractive and supportive to the physicians and other health workforce members and their families so that you build in that stability, that sustainability into the future. So we'll be presenting progress. We had a visit in to Northern Ontario in May, June 2018 of Dr. Lennox, and he went to a number of the remote rural communities in Northern Ontario and was very much taken by the similarities between Queensland, Australia and Northern Ontario and Canada. And so we're drawing on the experience in Queensland uh, to improve the uh, stability and sustainability of remote rural health services in Northern Ontario and Canada. Well, we'll be looking to see what's shared at the January 15th forum because it sounds like it will lead us to another episode where we can uh, look at some of those uh, findings that are shared. Um, Dr. Strasser, are there any particular countries, maybe among the ones you mentioned or maybe others, that you think Canada really has to be paying more attention to in terms of really promising practices in, in rural medicine delivery? Yes, that's a good question. There are other countries like Canada Australia obviously being one, uh, United States uh, being another, so geographically large developed countries uh, where there's a, a substantial proportion of population living in remote rural communities and there are continuing challenges in terms of ensuring access to quality healthcare for people in those remote rural communities. Then there are other countries where, uh, which are low or middle income countries and, and they have 
challenges in some countries most of the people live in rural communities and so the, the majority of the people uh, are uh, rural populations and and really i think looking at, at what we can learn from those countries is important as well i mean the the headline message really and this is the same everywhere in the world that access is the rural health issue. Even in those countries where most of the people live in rural communities, uh, the resources are concentrated in the big cities. There are always transport and communication difficulties from one rural community to the next, and also between the rural and the urban communities. And there are always workforce shortages, insufficient numbers of doctors and other health workforce to provide the care that's needed in these remote rural communities. And so, Novel approaches and, and methods that have been developed in, in low and middle income countries often are relevant for us to learn as well. Northern Ontario School of Medicine, as I mentioned, has a social accountability mandate, and we were a founding member of the Training for Health Equity Network, known as the NET, Training for Health Equity, T-H-E, NET. And, um, uh, and I would say that there are some really uh, useful learnings from looking at two of the, the schools actually in the Philippines, uh, one in a place called Zamboanga, uh, which its genesis was similar to Northern Ontario. Zamboanga is a very, uh, it's remote, politically unstable part of the Philippines. And, and it's because the community said, we're not going to have the supply of doctors we need unless we have our own medical school. And, and their students, uh, they spend uh, every year, they're, they're, they spend time in community just like for Northern Ontario School of Medicine. For NOSM, we have a four-year program, and in the third year, the students actually spend a whole year living and learning in one sort of mid-sized community in northern Ontario, so away from the larger centres of Thunder Bay and Sudbury. In, uh, in Zamboanga, it's the fourth year where the students live in communities, and those communities are in the jungle. Uh, most of them have never had a doctor, and so this is a, a very uh, intense, immersive community learning experience for the students, and there's quite a lot that we can learn from Zamboanga. Um, the School of Health Sciences in Leyte is also in the Philippines, and they have what's called a step ladder model. Their students, uh, they actually first have community members choose students to send to this school, and they train to become community health workers and midwives, and they go back and serve the community. And after a while, some of them are selected to go back and then train to be nurses, and they go and work as nurses in the communities. And then some of those nurses uh, are chosen to train to be physicians. And so the stepladder starts as a, as a midwife community health worker and then as a nurse and then as a doctor. And both Zamboanga and School of Health Sciences Laete in, in the Philippines have uh, really quite remarkable success in uh, the retention of their graduates providing care in remote rural communities that otherwise really struggle to have access to health care. And remembering that uh, in the Philippines, something like 60% of the medical graduates from the other medical schools in the Philippines leave the Philippines the next day and essentially go and, and uh, practice elsewhere in the world, particularly in the United States. So it sounds like the training model for physicians and, and the community engagement is a big part of a, a future of uh, solutions in this area. Absolutely. So community engagement really is 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 the, the central feature, I think, of the success of Northern Ontario School of Medicine. The school came into existence because of, of the active community participation. And we've really built on that over the years uh, as we've developed uh, the model that we have in Northern Ontario. And I think it's important to understand that the model that we have in Northern Ontario only happens in Northern Ontario. Now, what we did, of course, was to look around the world and look at the research evidence 
and everything, all of the various components of, of our model, a package of Northern Ontario School of Medicine is tried and proven somewhere in the world, but the package as it is only occurs in, in Northern Ontario. The three factors most strongly associated with going into rural practice after education and training are first a rural upbringing, that's having grown up in a rural area. The second factor is positive, and I emphasize the word positive clinical and educational experiences in the rural setting as part of undergraduate medical education. And then the third factor is after graduation, training, residency training that prepares the graduate to practice in the rural setting. And so we actually do all of that in Northern Ontario. And we have that, that notion of the, of the rural generalist pathway. So we encourage young people in the Indigenous communities, particularly primary school, elementary school students to consider healthcare as their future. Certainly uh, the high school students, uh, not only Indigenous, but uh, from the remote rural communities, the Francophone communities, uh, to be motivated to uh, study and get the grades and find their way into medical school. We have a selection and admissions process that favours applicants who come from Northern Ontario. In fact, 92% of our medical students have grown up in Northern Ontario and the other 8% come from remote and rural parts of the rest of Canada. So we have a very different class profile from the rest of, of, uh, of the Canadian medical schools. And we aim to reflect the population distribution of Northern Ontario in each class. If you remove the five larger population centres of Northern Ontario from the overall population, 40% of the population are in remote rural communities. 40% of our medical students come from remote rural community backgrounds. We have 22% Francophone, which is one population of special interest apart from remote and rural, which is about right. And in the first 10 years, 7% Indigenous. Now, our target is 12%. And as a result of reviewing our selection process after 10 years, we made some minor modifications and the last three years, uh, the class intake has been around 12% Indigenous students. So we have, uh, we reflect the population distribution of Northern Ontario in each class. And then our medical uh, education model is what we call distributed community engaged learning. Distributed means that our, our students and our residents or other learners undertake their clinical learning in a wide range of different community and clinical settings. In fact, we have over 90, 90 communities where our, our students and our residents, the other learners, may undertake part of their, their clinical learning. To make this work, of course, we rely heavily on electronic communications. So to connect these sites both in real time and asynchronously, and we have an extensive digital library service uh, which means with the internet, you have access to educational resources and information, pretty much the same as if you're in the big city, like in a teaching hospital environment. But the centerpiece of distributed community engaged learning is community engagement, the interdependent partnerships that we have with the communities of Northern Ontario. And the communities really are active in the development and delivery of, of our curricula in supporting and hosting our students and residents or other learners in those communities. And of course, for those communities, there's a potential future um, recruitment opportunity because if the student and their family and the residents uh, enjoy being in that community, there's a better chance that they'll choose to come back and provide care and practice in, in those communities. So that's our undergraduate program. We have residency programs in family medicine and eight other general specialties. Um, and particularly family medicine is a large multi-stream residency program. Uh, five large population centres are based sites. And then we have a rural stream where the residents have most of their residency actually in rural communities, the smaller remote rural communities. And we now also have a remote First Nations stream where the residents are actually based in a fly-in, fly-out First Nation. 
Uh, and so we're working in partnership with the uh, First Nations to implement this training program, which then in the future will mean that there are well-trained physicians who actually uh, live on reserve and provide care in those communities. We also have residency training in eight other general specialties. And so uh, the theme, once again, is distributed community engaged learning. And really, uh, generalism is one of our eight key academic principles. So there's, there's a strong emphasis on developing the, the competencies, the skills as generalists within their own specialty, whether that's as a, as a general surgeon or as a pediatrician or as a or as a, a internal medicine specialist or the same principle applies that the re requirement to have a broad range of skills to provide a wide range of services. In fact, uh, my kind of summary description of a rural practitioner is that a rural practitioner, when compared to their metropolitan counterpart, a rural practitioner is an extended generalist. So rural practitioners compared to the metropolitan counterpart provide a wider range of services. They carry a higher level of clinical responsibility in relative professional isolation. And that's true talking about not just physicians in general, but within specialties, within family medicine, within internal medicine, uh, within psychiatry and so on. It's actually true across all the health professions. So if we talk about nurses or pharmacists or physiotherapists, uh, rural practitioners are extended generalists in those disciplines as well. And I guess that speaks to the fact that it isn't for everyone. Like not everyone is is equipped to be an extended generalist in that way. It takes a certain kind of person, certain level of commitment, uh, working in isolation sometimes, being able to take advantage of remote networks of support. Um, so I think that's a, a certain uh, discernment that would have to happen during the, the education process. Absolutely. So I think you've highlighted something that's very important to understand is that rural practice is not for everybody. And actually, it's it's uh, beneficial that when uh, students, whether in medicine or other health disciplines, have uh, the opportunity of of some rural clinical experience early on, some of them will be will find this very exciting, and that that provides them with a direction for their future career. But others find it very off-putting, and they know they don't want to be rural practitioners, and that's a good thing for everybody for people to recognise that. Um, we often hear about financial incentives being offered to help address the uh, rural physician shortage or more money being recommended. How significant is the financial equation in your view? And do we sometimes put too much emphasis on that as being the, the way to solve this problem, um, maybe in the short term? I was a member of the expert panel uh, of the World Health Organization that published in, in 2010 a uh, policy recommendations on retention recruitment of remote health workforce. And, uh, and we looked at the world literature, the evidence that had been accumulated to that point. And in fact, uh, just uh, last year, there was an update on, the, on that review of the literature. And financial incentives come up as having a very, as have a short-term effect. But if that's the only intervention, then they don't have the desired effect beyond the, into the medium and long term. Uh, and uh, I mean, a good example uh, uh, in the time I've been here in Northern Ontario is a town in Northwestern Ontario where um, they, at the time, this is probably about 10 or 12 years ago now, at the time, uh, the community had, I think it was six physicians, one of whom who'd been there 25 years and the other five who'd come around the same time within about a year of each other. And, and they're all there, the, the five are all there uh, with ad additional 
incentive funding under what was called the underserved area program in northern Ontario and the the incentive funding uh, was coming to it an end and one by one those five physicians decided to leave that community and go back to just one mm. uh, that was certainly a wake-up call for the community about the importance as I said before of active community participation of embracing engaging not just the physicians but their family members and encouraging them to feel at home and want to stay in the community and so Really, the point of that story is that there are a lot more factors uh, that contribute to success in, in recruitment and retention of uh, physicians and their families in remote rural communities. Having said that, it's important not to discount the financial side of things because it's not well accepted where, where physicians feel that they're being under-rewarded and under-recognised, uh, undervalued by the, the financial side of things. So that there has to be rewarding and recognition, valuing of the work done by the, the physicians and they are extended generalists and they provide, generally speaking, they work longer hours than their counterparts in the, the cities and so on. So that needs to be built into the, the, the funding model. But as I say, there, there's a lot more that, that needs to be included really to, to recruit and particularly to retain uh, physicians and other health workforce in remote rural communities. Where I'm from in rural Nova Scotia, especially if I look at the last year or two, there's been um, a growth, I think, in the, the crisis point, getting to the breaking point in some rural communities with the physician shortage. Um, but in some communities, I see that there is good activity, mobilization among the hospital foundation, uh, municipal leaders, others to kind of support that whole recruitment effort. And in other communities, that's not really on the radar at all, or it's, or there might be a mindset that that's something that government looks after. Um, for people who might be listening who realize that there is, the community is not mobilized around this issue and they have to look beyond the next six months' needs, do you have any suggestions on how, when you're starting kind of from scratch, I know one community I'm thinking of is just now trying to organize to have a hospital foundation, which could support some of these things. So some of them are at the early stages. Do you have any advice on how to make this happen in a successful way? <coughs> well, yes. Yeah, so f first of all, as I've been highlighting, active community participation is really is really essential. And the form that takes does depend a bit on... on um, on you know the local structures, and we found with our partners in Europe that there are you know from one country to another differences. But of course, in Canada, we we actually have you know 13 different jurisdictions, and Nova Scotia is different from Ontario, is different from Nunavut, is different from the Yukon, and so uh, it, it is a matter of, of of recognizing the principle that is active community participation. Certainly, in Northern Ontario. Uh, we've derived a lot of strength and support from local government. So uh, the, the the municipal organisations are active partners with us in those communities. And again, you, as you mentioned, a hospital foundation. So in the big city, a hospital is a large, intimidating, depersonalising institution that you want to avoid at all costs if, if you can. In the small rural community, the hospital is often for people that are kind of home away from home. You know, the staff members, uh, they know as, as family members or friends and, and people have contributed to raise funds uh, to equip the hospital and ensure that they have the, the, uh, the services that they need in their community. And, uh, but the term is the same and unfortunately often government, uh, the central government, whether it's for a province or, the, or at the uh, national government level, 
you know, the, those sort of important differences and distinctions between uh, the same concept or the same term hospital in a small rural community and in the big city are not recognised, uh, whether it's in terms of the uh, expected service profile, the range of services provided, or, or the funding models to support those services. And I think sometimes maybe our communities who are mobilized, we're, we're so consumed by the urgent crisis in front of us that we might not be focusing on planning ahead. One thing that I really don't see happening very much, and maybe it's out there in some places and I haven't encountered it, um, but is this reaching back into the K-12 system, uh, identifying, as you said, you're more apt to have rural physicians uh, um, come to these communities and stay if they're actually uh, raised in rural communities. So if we can identify some of these young people who have that interest and skill set and talent um, to support them and encourage them along the way, I think maybe uh, that would go a long way. Are there changes, Dr. Strasser, that you would like to see in medical schools writ large? I know there's some innovative things happening uh, at uh, your school, but if we look at maybe medical schools across Canada, are there some things that you would like to see change that would help uh, address the problem of rural healthcare delivery more broadly in Canada? Yes, I would say there are. I, I should acknowledge that the medical schools, the other 16 medical schools in Canada certainly have been uh, looking at what we do in Northern Ontario and in one way or another all of them have adopted some of the aspects of the model that we have in, in Northern Ontario. I think though that uh, the biggest problem in Canada uh, is Canada. So, as I said, 13 provinces and territories, plus, of course, the federal government. So that's 14 jurisdictions. And then the federal government that's not supposed to be involved in, in delivering health care directly actually has three different health services that they run. So uh, that adds up to uh, 16 different health services in Canada. And that is particularly counterproductive when you're looking at, at, a, at a jurisdictional level, whether it's a province or a territory. So I would suggest the number one priority is to look at rural and remote Canada as one, as a, as a population. And in fact, we found this in our work with our partners in Europe, that people in remote rural communities often actually find they have more in common with people in other remote rural communities in other countries than they have with the people in the big cities of their own country. And so I, I think that that would be a major important change to make in the, in the thinking, policy development, implementation of services for uh, rural and remote Canada is to see rural and remote Canada as one in terms of, of service models. I was a member of a task force that developed a, um, an action plan. So in February of 2017, there was a, a rural health summit in, in Ottawa and that uh, at which uh, the, this action plan, rural and remote action plan was, uh, was uh, launched. And so that uh, much of what I've talked about is actually woven into the four directions and 20 actions that are recommended in this action plan. And this was developed jointly by the College of Family Physicians of Canada and the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada with strong support from many other partners and players who attended that summit. It sounds like uh, we need to all be open to doing things differently in the future, I guess, to get better at this and, uh, and to adopt some fresh thinking. Absolutely. In fact, uh, that's that's part of what really has led to our model in, in Northern Ontario and our success. The way that I help people to understand that is that I talk about the story of the traveller in the countryside in Ireland who wants to get to Dublin. I don't, I don't know if you've heard the story. No. So the traveller is, is in the countryside in Ireland and he wants to get to Dublin. 
and he sees a farmer in the field. And, and so he goes up to the farmer and he says to the farmer, how do I get to Dublin from here? Right. The farmer stops for minutes and he sort of looks into the distance. And he turns back to the traveler and, and he says, if you want to get to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. And so the point of this story is that we started in northern Ontario and we developed our own model of, North, of, of our school. We didn't take an off the shelf model of a medical school and somehow try to modify it and make it fit into northern Ontario. And I think that's the central theme of what I'm talking about. You have to start in the remote rural communities. And there's quite a lot of evidence that shows that the service models that work best in remote rural communities are the ones that are designed in the communities for the communities by the communities. And so that's a that's a central theme, really, about a, a, a different mindset, a changed way of thinking about an approach. You might say it really literally is outside the box, really, in an approach to address the challenges and and change the, the playing field, shall we say, for uh, healthcare in remote rural communities in Canada. But it's also an empowering message, right? It's an empowering that communities can take some things under their own uh, control and direction and, and make real change happen uh, by coming together around this. Absolutely. So the last thing I wanted to ask you then on that note is uh, how optimistic are you about the future? Do you, You're working with a lot of people with some great ideas. We're trying to get it right. Are you optimistic that uh, the conversation five years from now, 10 years from now might be substantially different? Yeah, so I've been involved in this field for the best part of 30 years. <laughs> and so I've seen a, a lot of changes and initiatives that have made a difference and others that don't seem to have really gained traction. And I do find it concerning that you know, sometimes the observation that people make is, well, you know, we're still short of doctors, we're still having challenges maintaining health services in rural communities, nothing's changed. That's not my experience. I, I would say that we have learned a lot over the last 30 years, and we know now better what the issues are, what the challenges, what the opportunities are. And so essentially, I, I am an optimist. We have the success of Northern Ontario School of Medicine uh, to point to in Canada and of other schools who are members of the Training for Health Equity Network in other countries. And we can draw on that experience and we've been working hard. So research is really a central element to this. It's, it's, it's actually asking research questions, the answer for which makes a difference to the health of the people of Northern Ontario in our case. And so it's looking at the, at the issues and asking the questions in the, in the remote rural Northern context. And so when you take that approach, the questions are different and the answers are different and the outcomes are different. And so I'm extremely optimistic. I think that uh, there have been some really major progress in the last decade. And there are opportunities that, that weren't there, say, 20 years ago. And in fact, NOSM is an example of that. The kind of distributed learning model that we have would have been very difficult to implement even five years, certainly 10 years before when we started. And that's because of, of the opportunity that's been uh, presented to us by communication information technology so that we really can have students and residents and learners, faculty members in remote rural communities and with the support as if they're in the big city in a teaching hospital environment. And so that's been a game changer. And I see lots of other opportunities and, and great potential for the future for remote rural communities in Canada and the rest of the world. Well, thanks very much. It's nice to end on an encouraging note. And uh, we will watch for the forum's uh, uh, key takeaways on January 15th. And hopefully we'll be able to get back together again as uh, in the months and years ahead to share some more success stories. Thank you very much, Dr. Stracer. Pleasure. And thanks to everyone for joining us this week. 
Please drop us a line with your ideas for upcoming episodes at info at ruralspark.ca. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seaberth. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.